being a trial lawyer is being a storyteller. I mean, that is what we do. We we take our client stories and we and we tell them. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. I'm your host, Kim O'Hara, a book coach with a story inside, and I am interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life with a story to tell. Do these folks have a best-selling book in them? Stick around and find out. Today, I'm talking to Matt Sparadelosi. He is the deputy public defender at the County of Santa Barbara, and he has a really incredible long resume, and he is very devoted uh, to cases uh, with wrongful convictions. He's got a lot to talk about with us today about a particular case of his that he did overturn based on uh, DNA, and he's going to get in a little bit more into details on that. I could try to tell you about crime labs and statistical evidence until I'm blue in the face, but I am just not a great scientist. So I'm going to turn it over to Matt. Matt, it's so good to have you here today. I mean, you're this deputy. You told me you play the banjo. You live on a ranch. You're kind of like coming into San Diego like Clint Eastwood with these overturned convictions. It's really fabulous. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell me how you got into your career with this particular area of law? Well, in law school, uh, I wanted to do trials. That was my, that was kind of like my goal is to do, be a trial attorney. And I knew that it was criminal law where you did more trials rather than civil. And that's why I went into criminal law. So I, I did uh, internships at both the public defender's office and then later at the, um, the district attorney's office. So as, as a like intern prosecutor, uh, and then with this particular case, I was, uh, you know, a private, you know, a lawyer, uh, fairly new. I think I'd been two years out of law school and got a referral from a, a law school friend. Uh, and this case kind of came across my desk and the client decided to hire me, you know, um, and, you know, we connected. So it, that's how I got involved in this particular case. It's pretty amazing that something landed on your desk that is now history, if you think about it. It's the first of 256 cases that you're discovering someone sat in jail for 10 years over uh, science that probably shouldn't have been allowed to slip through the cracks. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it is uh, really... uh, just to your point about how weird it is, I mean, uh, I, in a million cases, this is this has just got to be one in a million as far as the match between you know me and the client and the issues that were presented, particularly the DNA issues and my uh, skill set that I didn't even know I had to analyze and look at DNA um, <laughs> at the time. Uh, you know, I. It, it was, I've always been kind of a math nerd and it was, it's very mathematical, statistical, uh, area of forensics and it just clicked with me. So yeah, I mean, it was like lucky for me to get a case that, uh, helped me and helped me develop my career and my practice and lucky for the client that he got an attorney who, who understood the science behind what was going on and was able to successfully challenge it. 
It's interesting that murder is so human, right? It's, it's something that happens in, in for a variety of emotions and reasons. And yet the conviction is so science, it's scientific. But what you discovered was there was some profiling on this 10 years ago where there really shouldn't have been. Well, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the issue was the, uh, the DNA match on a pair of gloves. So, um, the issue became whether or not, um, Florencio or Jose, Jose's, um, DNA was found on a pair of gloves. The pair of gloves were clearly used by one of the perpetrators of the killing. And hmm. the question is whether he was, he, he wore the gloves the night of the killing during the killing. And of course, the prosecution used scientific evidence, DNA evidence to try and convince the jury that he was wearing those gloves. And, you know, that's a pretty difficult thing to overcome from the defense by saying, you know, they're, they're wrong about that, that the DNA evidence is wrong and that you shouldn't believe it. Um, but I, I think there are public perceptions of DNA that are just wrong about how reliable it is of a way to identify somebody. It's really not as reliable as the general public thinks, at least in certain contexts. The way you are describing it by, you know, there's 28 strands or 28 places where it has to match. Uh, yes. Essentially, they're looking for genetic markers to match. So genetic um, markers. Yeah. So what they do is they take a, they take an evidence sample, uh, Let's use this case as an example mm -hmm. uh, from the inside of the glove. So they actually swab the inside of the glove, you know, uh, using uh, a forensic swab. I, I forget the name of what they call them, but it kind of looks like a Q-tip. And then they put that into uh, a liquid extraction form and then they um, mix a chemical in there that amplifies the DNA, which means there's very small amounts of DNA and the chemical uh, makes those, that DNA replicate itself exponentially, mm -hmm. two, four, eight, 16, 32. And that, um, amplification process, uh, makes DNA more voluminous in the extract. And then they put that into, through, they, they kind of circulate that through a gel that's called electrophoresis. And that mm. separates the DNA markers and kind of identifies them. And so you get a profile, but the DNA, profile is, you know, millions or billions of genetic markers and they isolate. Uh, it used to be, I think it was 12 or 13 back in, uh, 2011 when the trial occurred, but now it's, I think 25 because they've advanced the science. So they isolate these markers and then they take the suspect profile and do the same thing and they line them up and they try and see if the suspect profile, if the same numbers in those genetic markers match the markers in the evidence sample. And of course, if it's your DNA, if you're the one who contributed the biological material to the glove, they should match at every single genetic marker. Uh, now, the problem in this case, and the, one of the reasons that um, I, I contested so vehemently to it at the trial and then later was able to get it overturned, is that um, the client didn't match at every single uh, marker. In fact, he was he was inconsistent with uh, 
they 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 took it's it's fairly complicated they took multiple samples of the glove he was inconsistent on multiple markers in multiple samples and mm. they still said he was included uh this was a practice that was used in the San Diego crime lab from a roughly i think 2003 to 2011 where they would selectively disregard markers where a suspect was inconsistent and the justification for that was that the evidence sample was only a small amount of DNA. Uh, and so they, they said they may not have gotten the full sample, the full genetic data at that particular marker. And so they could just disregard it. Now, the hmm. problem is, is that they saw or they used to look at the comparison first and see which ones were inconsistent and kind of use that as a basis to disregard the markers. And you can see that logic is kind of circular. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously it has problems. And he had, he had a witness, he had a witness that said he was there. Right. But that witness was uh, mentally unstable. Is that correct? Yeah, there was, um, there was a witness who, who identified him as the shooter. That was the other piece of evidence. Um, the that witness uh, for a myriad of reasons was not very reliable um he had admitted to he was first of all he was i believe at the time he was 13 at the time of the wow. shooting when he when he made the observations which was 2 years before the trial he indicated to police that he um he was smoking a blunt and drinking 40s at the time he he made the observation <laughs> He, uh, he also said that he, he basically like lied about, you know, about what he saw, his, his statements as to what he saw were just totally inconsistent with what all the other, other evidence showed what happened in the case. Um, he was, when he first made the statement, he had been arrested for a vandalism and he admitted at trial that he only made the statements implicating uh, my client, because he thought he would get out of his vandalism arrest. Oh my um, God. <laughs> there was all kinds of, uh, all kinds of issues with his statement. He, he later said that he lied to the police about implicating the client because, um, the client, the, the police officer, they, they like coerced him into saying this stuff. They never had him pick out my client out of any kind of photo lineup. So they just kind of assumed the person who he was talking about was my client based on the name. Uh, at one point in the trial, he, we asked him who, which detective interviewed him and he pointed at the detective who interviewed him and called him by a different name, the name of some other detective that didn't interview him. Wow. So, and the, the judge made remarks that it appeared as though he was, uh, intellectually disabled and he may have been, he may not have been. I, I can't really opine as to that, but um, he definitely had some uh, limitations. What was it that officially put him in jail for 10 years? What was the like nail in the coffin for Jose? Well, it, it was the, it was the DNA evidence that really um, essentially uh, got him convicted. I, I, there were, there were two trials. First of all, the first one, he, it was a hung jury. Uh, it was, uh, the vote counts was nine for not guilty and three for guilty. 
and then they uh, redid some of the DNA evidence and came back with what they considered to be more compelling DNA identification evidence against uh, Jose, but again, using the same methods, the same kind of outdated methods that were later repudiated and or even contemporaneously repudiated if you look at the history of it. Are you an aspiring author burning to write a book? We would love to help you at A Story Inside. Head over to astoryinside.com. That's A-S-T-O-R-Y inside.com where you can receive surefire tips, my weekly newsletter, and an opportunity to speak with me about going from desire to yes with that book. Time is of the essence, people. And now back to our great guest. You want to eventually write a book about this. And I know when we talked about it, there was a lot of, you know, contemplation about, is it a book that involves the science of it and the legalities of it and how intricate that is? Would that be boring? Or is it more of an emotional story about this concrete builder with three children who is out of gangs for all intents and purposes, as far as you knew? that suddenly has been implicated for murder and now spends 10 years in jail. And you're the guy that comes along, lands on your desk and you get him out of jail. That's sort of the hero story. But you sort of feel like then you'd be telling Jose's story too. So you're like, well, maybe Jose needs to tell the story with me, but Jose's not a writer. So what do you do? Yeah, it, it, I know. And I, I thought about that as far as his involvement and how to get him involved, because I really think his perspective is important. Um, but even more elementary than that, the, this, uh, I don't know, this, this kind of feeling I have about telling stories. Cause you know, mm-hmm. I think, I don't know if the, the general population knows this, but almost every trial lawyer knows this, that being a trial lawyer, is being a storyteller. I mean, that is what we do. Mm. We, we take our client stories and we, and we tell them to, to a court on every day, whether it's to a judge at a motion or to a jury at a jury trial. We, we want to bring a compelling, uh, story that, um, that people can connect with on a deeply emotional level. And my, thought about writing this book is I'm kind of the science nerd who really did a nosedive into this DNA stuff. And if I write a book about all the intricacies of DNA, I'm not sure that's something that has a strong emotional connection for a lot of people. And that's, you know, quite frankly, not a good story. Good stories involve good emotional connections, not DNA, uh, you know, intricacies and, you know, minutia. So, you know, I, I guess the the challenge, and this is true when presenting on DNA at a jury trial, the challenge is how do I get people, the public, anybody who, audience who wants to participate in, in hearing this story, how do I get them emotionally connected in complex DNA? So you have victory at the end of the day. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, and you're, and you, and you're making, and you're making, and now it's a thing. Now it's actually a thing. Like, like more of these people (sighs) are coming forward because of this. Well, yeah. So I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. The, when the DNA decision was made in, in, uh, that was actually also October, but 2018 where 
uh, Jose's conviction was overturned because of this DNA issue. The DA in San Diego, they have a conviction review unit, and they identified uh, 256 other cases where this same kind of faulty DNA evidence was used. Mm. And they notified all the attorneys on those cases. The media was notified. There was all kinds of hoopla uh, coverage on it nationally. Yep. And that's not to say that that all of these cases are overturned because the the first step is identifying that the evidence was used in their trial or or to induce their plea. The second step is to determine whether that evidence is material to the conviction. And that that second step is is much more consequential, believe it or not. No, it seems to be like it's a big change and it's a necessary change. Uh, and, and I'm grateful that you came and talked with us about it today in your busy schedule. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe or review on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, and Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts.